kind of otherworldly of like what you can already do with prototype nanobots and you know obviously if we want to do anything in cryonics on the long run um, we need a very advanced nanotechnology so I think that you know nanotech the whole molecular machines tech tree I see that as a very big enabling technology tree for the longevity tree. Hey guys, Alex here, and welcome to another new episode of the DSI podcast. We have a fantastic guest in Alison Dittman today. She's the president of the Foresight Institute, a nonprofit working to advance biotech, nanotech, and computing for the long-term benefit of life. She shares Foresight's work with the public in the Wall Street Journal, South by Southwest, O'Reilly AI, WEF, the Partnership on AI, Effectivalsurism Global, and TEDx. She founded existentialhope.com, co-edited the book Superintelligence, Coordination and Strategy with Roman Yampolsky, and is currently working on a book on intelligent cooperation. She holds a master's in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics, focusing on AI safety, and a bachelor's in philosophy, politics, and economics from York University. Today, we spoke about the importance of optimism, Foresight's work on everything from decentralized computing to health extension, as well as tech trees and the value of decentralized science. Hope you enjoy. All right, Alison. Um, you know, before we get into the bulk of things, I'd like to ask a bit about your path that led you to speaking with me today. What was this this process early on of discovering futurism? You know, what what got you excited about it and how did that shape your path to ultimately finding yourself at Foresight? Um, yeah, well, I guess there's multiple different answers to this. A few are more professional than others. Um, but uh, really, since I remember, I grew up in Germany, and that's where I'm from. But um, I always found the uh, notion of death pretty difficult. Um, and just because life was uh, is really quite fantastic at its best, like it definitely has the challenges. I don't want to diminish those, but I think on a good day, um, many of us can agree that uh, life is really pretty wonderful. And I think that like you know, an eighty-year time life is just a little bit arbitrary. And then you know, I think that as a child, you it's really easy to ask these questions uh, because you know, like you don't really have the societal kind of like artificial boundaries around how a life should go yet very ingrained in you and then obviously the more you ask the more often you get told that this is just the way it is and, and so forth and so over time you just kind of like learn to accept it but it was definitely this kind of like longing for more was often like a you know pretty big part of my life uh, and then uh, over time I think you know I first like dabbled a bit in philosophy around this because I wanted to see if anyone else was really thinking around these uh, same lines as well because um, in Germany there weren't that many at least at the time uh, I know this changed also a lot um, with people taking more of an interest in the future um, but yeah so I um, I was very interested became through that like longing for a longer uh, more flourishing um, kind of like expansionary life became very interested in two things one are technologies <laughs> because we really need them if we want to get anywhere but then also the other one is existential risk on the other side just because um i think as a child you think that all you have to do is just for yourself to survive but then the older you get sometimes you realize that there are no adults in the room and you know if we don't play our cards right um we may not have any civilization that survives at all in the very long-term future and so I think that, you know, one thing that if you're interested in your own long-term survival is um, you are immediately interested in survival and the survival of civilization. 
um, as well, at least the moment that you realize that it's not a given. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously technologies are uh, on the one way a path for us to reach better worlds and on the other end also a potential addition to existential risks. And so, yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying I got interested in technologies um, through like a wish for a longer, happier life for myself and for civilization. Um, and then I found Foresight on the internet. I called emailed them <laughs> from my wow. university uh, and, uh, and and convinced them to take me on. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. And, you know, you, you alluded to this a little bit, but it goes into another question I have at a more foundational level, um, which is about positive visions of the future. You mentioned this this great quote um, about raising reality to meet your expectations rather than lowering expectations to meet reality. Uh, so my question for you is, why are positive visions of the future for humanity so important? Well, I think, I mean, it always depends on who you talk to. I'm assuming that most people listening to this wonderful podcast already have taken, I guess, what's more in the crypto circle called the green pill. <laughs> um, uh, but um, but I think that's, you know, it's not like that everywhere. Like, I think usually when you look around and maybe even more so in Europe or at least pockets in Europe than in pockets of Silicon Valley, um, I think you find that despite the fact that life has been improving pretty steadily uh, over the last hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, you know, our kind of like realization that it has been has not been steadily adjusting so i think that you know if most of the time if you ask around people think that you know things are getting worse um that you know violence is increasing that um you know pretty substantial like societal flaws are increasing and so i think it doesn't often match with the actual kind of like improvement in living conditions that many of us were fortunate enough to receive over the past you know like really few hundred thousand years um, and so I think you know this kind of like realization um, of like you know positive like a positive outlook I think starts with a gratitude for how far we've come uh, and just realizing what our ancestors kind of like put forth and how much they paid forward um, for us to get to where we are and then I think it also starts with looking at the future in a different light and rather than kind of having this more default vision on the future of you know what uh, what would a path be in which we all kind of like self-destruct um which you know is certainly something that's kind of like a morbid fantasy that is just i think a bias that we have that it's a little bit more interesting to think about but rather than just like getting stuck in that which is certainly easier uh, and somehow weirdly more attractive to our human minds actually asking the other question of like you know what what would it mean to actually put something uh, you know put put like a foundation in place on which we could build wonderful worlds and you know i think that from most stories you know that that's a harder thing to do like um i, th I think like you know a i think criticism is easier than putting something constructive um uh in it, yeah, than making a constructive proposition and b i think like something negative also you know it's the hero's journey and and so this kind of idea mostly in like stories and narratives that we have in the media um of like you know this kind of like moment of um moment of doom moment of dread that is definitely a good hook it gets people agitated we're definitely very drawn from that evolutionarily we're like pretty wired to run on fear so it's like attractive to human minds um and then there's you know probably a bunch of other reasons too why we have this more uh, a little bit like like an outlook that is too negative 
if we just looked at where we are right now and the other worlds that are possible. So I think this whole outlook of looking looking elsewhere um, is, I think, pretty attractive and um, and it fits well, I think, with what also Desai uh, is doing these days. Of course. On a similar note, I'm wondering what your take is on optimism. You know, I, I spoke with Jason Crawford not too long ago, who I know you know, um, and he has this really interesting distinction uh, between descriptive and prescriptive optimism, basically the difference between, you know, blindly accepting good things will happen versus deciding to work on ensuring good things do happen. Do you align with this at all? Do you consider yourself an optimist to begin with? Oh God, that's another, I think, question. And, you know, without wanting to get too boggled down in semantics here, like there's a lot of different takes on optimism. I think Steven Pinker is calling it intelligent optimism um, on his website of just like, you know, actually putting like actions in place that are, um, uh, that are, um, that are tainted by, you know, the enlightenment uh, of like how we move forward. Um, then, you know, I think, you know, obviously Teal has like a, a few different verbiages around this. Um, that I think, you know, Vincent gave us a pointer on, um, you know, of like really definite optimism versus indefinite pessimism of which indefinite pessimism is really the worst, um, where, you know, like, it's kind of like, you don't even know why everything is going wrong, but, but it seems to be, but I also kind of like this idea, uh, or at least like in, I want to put it up in the ring of, um, of vague hope. And so there is this uh, concept, I think it was first, first put forward by Elias Zerukowski uh, in the sequences, which is like the rationalist Bible. And that's uh, this idea that sometimes um, if we are too specific and prescriptive around the specific features we want to reach, um, if we don't reach them, um, you know, we have this <laughs> bubble bursting and, you know, people, uh, people becoming extremely pessimistic about progress. Um, and I think that this has happened to a variety of different technologies before when we had the big winters and people really giving up because specific concrete prescriptions and goals and sometimes snake all visions didn't come through. And so this idea that, you know, you want to kind of roughly paint a positive outlook that is broad enough to get a lot of people on board, um, but also not concrete enough that when we don't make it quite to specific um, milestones, uh, that, that it causes like a huge kind of like um, failed expectation uh, setback and uh, and pessimism wave again. So I'm kind of a fan of this. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at many of the predictions that people also in the foresight community have been making for a long, long time, um, a few of them have definitely come to fruition and a few of them, you know, we're not just quite there yet. A few of them also, the terms have changed. We now care about different technologies. And so I think, you know, the more open you can be towards the future and the more open-minded while still being on a generally <clears throat> progress-motivated path, I think the um, the harder it is to get, like, buckled down in individual, uh, in individual um, kind of, like, setbacks. Um, and at the same time, I think predictions are wonderful because, you know, they allow people to put their money where their mouth is. But I'm just saying in general, if you want to have like a hopeful attitude, I think it, it really helps to consider the entire pot of technological possibility. And certainly at Foresight, we have a very interdisciplinary approach. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes informative to, um, uh, to you know, for positive worlds. Absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned this, you sort of alluded to it in this idea of, of vague hope, but I'm, I'm curious to dig in a little bit further. Why do you think people are so pessimistic about the future? I mean, if you dig in, you'll find a pretty noticeable lack 
of positive visions of the future, especially in more recent years? Why do you think that is? I think there's all kinds of questions, and I'm not like um, you know psychologists who have studied this uh, on numerous occasions, but I think, <clears throat> or at least I'm assuming that um, we've built up a ton of expectations um, over the years about where we should be. And actually one of Forsyth's previous presidents, uh, Josh Stoss Hall, wrote the book, Hey Man, Where's My Flying Car? <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to just figure out why we were promised flying cars and why we're not there yet. And so I think we're now in this kind of like, if you, you know, look at this like a wave, like a path of singularity as an S-curve, I think we're definitely at this path where we were promised a lot and like we don't we see many of these things not coming through. Um, it's not only that, you know, this is all kind of like um, a hallucination that we're not making progress. I think that, you know, as you know, Tyler Cohen, um, Alex Taborak, um, Patrick Collis and many others have published uh, really wonderful kind of like work, including Teal, on like why we're stagnating right now, especially in science and techno technology. Um, and I think that, you know, that's certainly, that's certainly room for improvement. Um, but I think I'm still pretty optimistic about the future. I think, I think generally speaking, there are two like different camps, I think, of people who are pessimistic about the long-term future. One of them um, are the ones I think that are just generally not convinced we have we are on a good path in general, like the ones that even doubt that until now we've been on a good path, uh, on a progress-driven path. And, and I think those are perhaps a little bit easier to counter because we can just point to where what, how we've made progress so far. But then the one where I think, um, you know, there's really a point to um, to interact with are the ones which just point out, hey, look, maybe until now things have gotten better, but now we're at this kind of like, you know, point in human history, like maybe at the precipice at the in the most important century, how to be odd and Will McAskill pointed out where, um, where it really matters because now we have created the technologies that can either lead us uh, towards really wonderful long-term futures or towards or towards destruction. And I think that's just true. <laughs> that is just true. Um, and so I think if you want to interact with this claim, you know, on an existential hope level, I think without wanting to be Pollyannish, you need to really accept that there are these um, really terrifying threats to the future of humanity. They are certainly there. Um, I think one interesting approach that certainly people in Foresight take, and that has also been pointed out by Wilma Gaskell, and that I think there is a little bit more attention to now is this approach of differential technology development where um, we accept that technologies can really accelerate terrifying paths, but you also think that potentially um, rather than trying to, you know, through regulation alone, um, slow specific technologies down, which may not be possible on a global scale because there's always other nation states that would move move ahead. Instead, um, it could be, or in addition to, it could be an additional approach to speed specific technologies up that are safety enhancing. Um, and that's certainly one approach where I think I feel pretty at home that, that many foresight folks, uh, I think, would, would understand. Uh, if you would you know, ask me to name an example, um, I think to make it just concrete, Computer security is, I think, one specific example where that's probably not good if we get better security in place. Um, um, and, you know, there are a few wonderful projects like SEL4, like basically a microkernel that comes from, I think, the University of Sydney 
um, that uh, where DARPA has tried to, had one of their red teams try to break in and didn't find an approach of like, of, of either, of, of making any progress at like breaking the security system. Um, and, you know, they, I think, really struggled with funding a few years ago. And that seems to me totally uh, mysterious, why we're not just totally boggling down on the few technologies where we think like, okay, those are probably broadly, um, you know, positive futures enhancing. And there's a few probably where many people would agree on. Um, and that's not the only one. There's a few others. Um, longevity, I think, is probably broadly good. Um, there's a few kinks that we need to figure out and social um, you know, on social and inequalities aspects and so forth. But roughly, that's a really, really good one to pursue. And there's more more like this. But I think that, you know, this existential hope aspect for the long-term futures uh, translates to me in terms of actionable items, often into differential technology development. To put a bit of a, a bow on this subject, um, and in keeping in line with some of the things you spoke about earlier, I think it can be interesting sometimes to turn a question on their head. So to do that, for a moment, in what areas do you think we're being too optimistic today? Okay, there's two different types of optimism. Too optimistic in terms of we think progress is advancing faster than it is, or um, where fast progress is not necessarily positive for the long-term future. <laughs> Interesting. Take your pick. Mm, let's see. Well, um, okay, let me start with the first one. So I am a big proponent of cryonics. Um, while I care a lot about the longevity space, and I certainly do hope we make it through, I'm really not so sure, um, especially for people that are um, even our age right now, um, and our chronological age. <laughs> um, uh, but but certainly for our parents, um, I think that, you know we, 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 they're not going to make it um, in time for LEV. Um, and so I think if we want to give them a chance at living a wonderful long life with us, um, cryonics is definitely something we need to pay more attention to. <clears throat> and then secondly, I can just pick for the second one. Um, you know, like within cryonics, I think also, you know, we are not quite as far ahead as we should. And so I think it's really useful to drill down on progress in that area. It's uncomfortable for people to think about because it's already uncomfortable to think about the fact that death is bad, but then at least you can kind of hold your um, hold yourself onto the next straw that like you will, if you only lean into longevity, you'll make it through. And then also to realize that we may not even make it through with longevity, uh, with current longevity and rejuvenation technologies. That's even more uncomfortable to accept. And so <laughs> is an uncomfortable uh, path. Um, to 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 investigate, but I think it's just something we have to get around um, to doing. So that's one of them. Gotcha. Okay, let's talk a little bit about foresight. Um, as an organization, you you sort of operate under these these five technical programs of decentralized computing, molecular machines, biotech, and uh, biotech and health extension, neurotech, and space tech. I think I got all of them. How were these five identified as being the most important things to work on? Yeah, so that comes a little bit, I think, from A, from our past, um, that also obviously informed our mission statement and the other way around. So um, we, as a general heuristic, we try to support the scientific and technological development in areas that are too ambitious 
and that could be interdisciplinary, early stage, what have you, for legacy funders to support in as much as we think that they are beneficial for a positive future. So we have like this specific, um, you know, positive direction and in that direction search for like undervalued opportunities. Um, and then it has just been a historical, I think, coincidence that many people in our community have cared about these specific technologies a lot. And I do actually think that each of them has a point. So if we start, for example, with decentralized computing, um, you know, that uh, is a historical accident insofar as we overlap a lot with the early cypherpunks and our member constituents. <laughs> um, and now many of these technologies are finally coming online, obviously with crypto and uh, Web3 and, uh, and, and DeSci. And I think a specific area that we focus on in that particular um, cluster are um, decentralized approaches to AI. And so trying to figure out how what crypto cryptography security technologies have um, to say about AI futures on the long run. And so we focus a lot on specific privacy-preserving machine learning approaches, uh, on specific approaches to getting security and security right on specific uh, approaches of of really kind of like interweaving crypto and, uh, and AI, which I think is something that um, is still being paid too little attention to. Um, I come from the AI ethics field and I think it's extremely difficult to align um, humans um, on um, values. And I have less hope that we can align one artificial general intelligence with human values. And I'm more optimistic um, that we can align multiple different actors um, on, in a decentralized way with specific sets of human values that can then hold each other in check. And so for me, this is also an AI safety angle. So that's one. Then for biotech in rejuvenation, like our history, again, is a big overlap with people that have been signed up to cryonics for a long, long time. Um, they have cared uh, a ton about longevity since our foundation, which was on the book Engines of Creation, a book on nanotechnology. Um, and nanotechnology mostly really for cryonics and uh, longevity and, and long-term spaceflight. And so it's been a historical accident. And at the same time, I also think that um, at least until five years ago, many people really didn't care about longevity yet. And so at our conferences five years ago, <laughs> there were like, I don't know, 30 people most of them not funders. <laughs> um, and, you know, that has certainly changed. Um, and so to that extent, I'm super happy. That's why within longevity, I'm now pushing a bit more for cryonics, which I think is still an undervalued area within longevity. But I think, you know, that one is is is, is a no-brainer to me, I think. Uh, and then molecular nanotechnology is kind of the founding technology, like the main technology that we're focused on very early on. And so that is basically... Um, asking the question of like, what could we build if we could move, if we could build things with atomic precision by literally moving atoms and putting them in the places that we wanted them to be, <laughs> rather than currently like wastefully on the very kind of like higher end stacking things together. What if we could just actually build with like very low uh, resource, um, resource waste and incredibly cheaply from the bottom up um, with atomic precise manufacturing? And so that, you know, has had like a very big summer early on, on Fawcett's founding and had a really deep winter for the last 20 years. And it's finally coming back online because now you see many of the tech design tools and design software tools in computer science, which is now having its big summer and spring, 
uh, being extremely valuable for progress in molecular machines. And so we had this really wonderful workshop um, this year, design software for molecular machines, where we've had just like really great proposals coming out at the intersection of design tooling and molecular machines. So I think that field is totally coming back, but it's definitely still been uh, pretty wintry in there until like even three years ago. Um, and then uh, neurotechnology, it's an interesting one because A, it ties in deeply with the longevity angle, and it also ties in deeply with the AI angle. So we are in next year and 2023 and probably in Q1, we are launching a workshop uh, with Andrew Sandberg together who uh, published the first roadmap for whole brain emulations, I think in 2007 or eight, uh, if I'm not mistaken on the year. And in that he's lays out the first roadmap to whole brain emulations. Um, and really no one has ever really come back um, and you know did a revamp and now we're in 2022. Um, and so we really thought it's about time. People care about the metaverse again, but we don't really have very good input output uh, into our cyberspace layers and uh, and beyond that you know we don't really have good ways in which we can richly cooperate um, with humans and eventually you know it could be a good longevity hedge as well and so next year we're going to do another whole brain evaluation roadmap workshop early next year uh, also with an ai safety hinge because many people's ai timelines have been shortening uh, very rapidly over the last i would say year and then before that, a few years, but the last year really rapidly. And if you think you have really short timelines, exotic approaches become more appealing. And so at least from an AI safety perspective, it could also make sense to just look at specific whole brain emulation approaches again, insofar as we could really speed up human intelligence um, and potential integrations um, in that realm. Did I forget one? Oh, space. I forgot space. Uh, space is, has been um, also a historical deep interest uh, from, from ours. Um, many of our early conferences were together with the L5 community and extropianism. Um, L5 community was the, the Lagrangian 5 community of like, how can you build kind of sustainable, um, sustainable habitats um, or points for humans? Um, uh, in L5 points uh, around the Earth, mostly, um, that would, could potentially be cheaper than like settling the moon uh, or Mars or what have you. Okay, I can't say I was expecting you to go so deep into all of this. I really, that's super cool of you. Um, okay, so now onto, onto tech trees for a moment. This is, this is a concept you speak about um, quite a bit that I'd really love to dig into. The idea, as, as I understand it, is basically mapping out technological capability uh, these these paths that got us to where we are today in a given field. Um, how do you break the concept of tech trees down for people? So let's see. Um, there are a few great posts. I don't know if you usually do link drops or something, but I just want to point. Yes, to we can. Okay. Uh, so uh, Balaji posted on a tech tree that would basically allow individual investors to have an investment thesis that um, builds on the sorry i should start from the beginning tech trees uh, as you as those of you who have played civ may know are really like a great way of slotting out the technological milestones that you need to get from where you are right now to the future where you want to be and then a few people have riffed on this um balaji being one of them who basically said that a vc's portfolio thesis could potentially be revamped by something called a tech tree that is um basically a, a vc's kind of like um 
or in, or in angels, a kind of like stack of the different types of technological capabilities that they think we need to hit um, to reach a positive future as they define it. Um, so that's a little bit more like an individualistic approach or like at least like a, um, a, an approach based for, like, that's relevant for one individual. And Trent McConaughey has published a really wonderful post on starships and tokens, which is basically drafting the um, alternative version to that, which is a tech tree that goes from the place where humans currently are all the way to Dyson spheres and reshaping the cosmos. And it's basically breaking down the different technological milestones that we need in AI, neurotechnology, decentralized computing, um, low-cost energy, space flight, and so forth, breaking them down into individual buckets. And um, and then with a kind of like, with the idea that you could potentially put QR codes on that different people could fund with crypto uh, and others could, um, and those people wanting to work on solving these milestones could um, propose project proposals. Um, and that then get funded uh, if a certain th th threshold is reached or if specific people agree that those projects are great. Um, so you could like crowdfund your way um, through this tech tree on a civilizational scale. And um, we thought, you know, both ideas were great. And at the same time, we've been kind of thinking in parallel, um, how do we kind of communicate the work that our individual technical groups are doing to the outside? So the way that we push for our individual technological area, that areas that I've described just earlier, is that we have fellowships, prizes, and technical seminars in these specific areas. Um, and we onboard, um, I don't know, about like a few people per month into these specific technology tracks that are run through virtual seminars and, and, and in-person workshops. And oftentimes I get these emails of people that want to join these tracks um, asking, you know, what's the number one thing that they should be focusing on? And, you know, I'm not the person to, to tell that to anyone. It's a ludicrous question uh, for me to answer, but I wanted to make it a bit easier for people to find out. And so we thought, what if we kind of map the individual technology spaces that uh, we try to push for um, in a way where new people come into the field and those could be new talent or new funders would have an easier way of orienting themselves where they specifically could make the biggest impact. And so rather than doing Balaji's thing and of doing one individual investment, this is the tech tree that they have where they individually want to go. And rather than wanting to do the Trent McConaughey thing, which is as a civilization, where do we want to go? We did the middle thing of like, as a technological field, where should that be going? And so with the idea is that then people like Balaji can come in as an investor and pick and choose from different fields and build their own thesis, like their own path through the technology tree stack. And then, you know, if you are interested in the more long-term civilizational tree, you could pull together the different uh, technological tracks and their tech trees and ask how they integrate across each other to build a more long-term ambitious future. And so we try to do that middle ground just because that's the expertise that we have, like we have domain experts in these fields and so we set out to um, have like a team of tech tree leads in these areas uh, that we just talked about um, that basically interviewed uh, our fellows and our mentors and uh, our keynotes in these spaces and to figure out exactly how do their individual subdomains in, let's say, neurotechnology um, unite to create a path for whole brain emulations. Um, how do different people's work and longevity um, kind of like relate to build 
longevity escape velocity and what does cryonics have to do with it we ask people in molecular machines how can we get from where we are right now to atomic precise manufacturing like what are you working on how does it relate to the work that other people are doing in that space and so forth for the other technology stacks and now we're at a point where we have like a beta version we build a tool for it um and we haven't also totally open sourced it yet because we're still um wanting to build the first uh, version pretty well but i'm um, hoping that at the end of this year we're at a point where uh, yeah the people can at least tell us why we're wrong <laughs> so this was this was implemented pretty recently um maybe i'm reaching with the question or maybe it's too early but what would you say are some surprising bottlenecks that you found again understanding this is a pretty recent implementation for you all but i'd be curious to hear if anything unexpected maybe arose for you in, in identifying those technological bottlenecks yeah, well, I mean, I'm not one of the tech two leads, unfortunately. So anything that I say is like from a very high perspective. Um, and they will probably um, be upset with me. because <laughs> They probably have a much, much better answer to this question than I do. Um, but I think a few fields that maybe not necessarily thought of themselves as being within a specific field, um, you know, you could often cluster them in that field. And for them, it's then, you know, a little bit more interesting to also look elsewhere of like, how does their specific innovation trickle through to other areas? Um, and, you know, I think a few of the work, you know, really in like artificial organs and in, in that space, that is not always clustered within the longevity space. But certainly if you have a little bit more of an ambitious approach, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting work, I think, in that area that um, relates to long-term uh, progress and longevity. And I thought it was really cool to see that just in relation to uh, to other work in that space. Um, and, you know, I think that ultimately the most interesting bits will really be at the intersection of individual trees. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that once we have built them, we can take the, you know, decentralized computing tree to a molecular machines conference that we do and show people what people in computing are working on and what tools they may have available very soon so that folks in molecular machines uh, you know could have a little bit of an idea of like what other people are doing in a space quite outside of theirs and uh, that they the tools that they could eventually take advantage of and so there are certainly a few um, that i think are just you know yeah just shining up gradually on the event horizon <laughs> Oh my gosh, you totally beat me to my next question. I mean, you know, it's it's of course it's definitely important to categorize technology to to tackle it, but um, you know, technology isn't necessarily as siloed as tech trees might make it seem. I think that was the first thing that came to mind for me when I was reading about them. Um, so I guess that in mind, you're talking about modeling for like these this this interoperability between trees, that space where, you know, biotech and and molecular machines or space tech and, and decentralized computing overlap. Um I guess a two-part question. First of all, how do you how do you go about modeling for that and identifying these areas of overlap? And um, second of all, what do you see as being the unlocks as a result of of doing that? Yeah, well, again, we're we're still relatively early in this fund because you know we first want to get like at least the basics covered. Like it's it took a lot of time to a set up the team, um, then to be kind of like figure out what even makes sense as a blueprint or as a skeleton for building these trees they all look quite different <laughs> uh, you can already look at a few of them like prototypes on our website under tech trees and they all look really different for each field you know and and first we thought okay should we like impose like a structure 
that everyone that each domain should follow uh, but then we thought it could be in more interesting for the tech tree leads just to go out and see for their field what is the structure that makes most sense and so now that we've done that we're trying to just see how can we make them a little bit more congruent or like integrate across different domains um but yeah so i'm assuming that you know like we haven't really done the integration across trees yet because first we want to just um be sure like we, we basically have, have an extreme bottom-up approach um, rather than trying to immediately tie the threads between different fields without really knowing um, you know what we can deliver to that field I think first we want to like get sure that like the you know base bottom-line information is correct um, but at the same time you know I think that there's a few like hunches obviously like I think that you know molecular machines like my hope is that, as I said, like the computing space will have a lot to say about the molecular machine space <laughs> in terms of better design tooling, but also in terms of potential, like better just, you know, compute that uh, folks could be using. And I think the on the flip side, the molecular machine space, which also includes like, you know, more like really hardware focused nanotech could have a lot to say about a potential future um, compute design. And that's more on the very long run. Um, but I'm seeing like a few interesting overlaps already. Then I think the um, newer technology in BCI space will be pretty relevant for longevity eventually, like as we open up that bucket more, uh, especially in so far as like newer technologies are really interesting for longevity. And I'm, and I'm already seeing even on the tech tree, um, I wish I could screen share, but like even on the tech tree, there are a few nodes that uh, that are pretty relevant already for longevity with the newer tech. Um, and then for molecular machines, I also think that they could be really influential for longevity. Obviously, like, I mean, we've all heard stories of like nanobots cleaning your bloodstreams, but I don't think we're actually that far um, away from that. We've had a few really great keynotes um, that, you know, are just kind of otherworldly of like what you can already do with prototype nanobots and you know obviously if we want to do anything in cryonics on the long run um, we need a very advanced nanotechnology so i think that you know nanotech the whole molecular machines tech tree i see that as a very big enabling technology tree for the longevity tree and so i'm really thinking that people working in the space of longevity will can make really good use of looking at what's on the event horizon in molecular nanotechnology Awesome. So now on the topic of DSI, which I know is an area of interest for us both, does this element of, of decentralization or, or DSI more broadly enable tech trees or, or vice versa? Like, what would you say is the big unlock that decentralized science provides in the context of your work at Foresight? Yeah. So, I mean, on the tech tree end, there are certainly a few, um, and they are like, um, I started very unambitious, very ambitious. So on an unambitious level, we've already asked, um, you know, going back to the crowdfunding aspect, like we've already asked throughout, so basically we've built these trees through domain expert interviews. Um, and so we've asked all of these experts, like what's the number one thing you could find, you would find if only you had the money too, that is not your individual domain. Um, and so we have this long list of challenges that they would like to do in an ideal world. And so we've started putting Gitcoin bounties on them to outsource like, you know, early stage proposal generation for how one could make progress on nodes. And so 
at the end of this year, we're going to basically have the tech trees integrated with specific challenge nodes that then link out to crowdfundable challenges. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to really crowd, um, like on the one hand, open up the crowdsourcing of specific just questions of like, how, how, how would you make progress on this specific area? Like, why does a one pager about this? Um, and then the idea is that over time, more people could fund these challenges and we could really like, and, and people could also put money up for a challenge that we haven't really figured out yet. So let's say you're like a longevity philanthropist with a specific um, interest in an area um, and you just wanna want others to know that you would fund work in that area. You could basically like take it, um, take, take a challenge in that area and pin it on the tech tree and fund the best proposals that are being proposed to that space. So the moment we outsource the tech trees, it will also have this, um, you know, ability for people to kind of like um, to cross fund uh, specific domain uh, domains by by funding challenges. On the long run, um, sorry, I should also say that um, while currently the tech tree is still like the moment we outsource them, the idea is that you can also fork your own tech tree from them and so this decentralized notion of like not everyone has to build on the same tree but people can kind of like fork their own specific trees that are relevant for their areas will be a big part of this and we will be allowing like crowdsourcing as well so people really being able to make contributions on the tree and being rewarded for them and so that's you know all pretty uh, i think desi um compatible for me ideally on the very long run what we'd like to do is you know, to the notion of IP NFTs, right? For just for a second, like if you just think about a tech tree where you have a bunch of specific um, scientific challenges that are attached to a node um, and you have crowdfunding, like you allow a bunch of people to put money in. If other people then propose a project to that, you could have this turn into an IP NFT where everyone who funded the specific node and funded a, a grant that then was given to the best project that was uh, project proposal um, that would actually um, you know turn into an IP NFT and people could later on reap rewards for that. So I think that notion of IP NFTs and this is not a V1 of the tree that is more V2 or V3, but you could really imagine like funding the way for through an entire technology tree by having uh, IP NFTs be unlocked at every specific node. Um, and on another note, if you don't want to just fund research, but just wanted to fund startups, you could make the money that gets crowdfunded at an individual node just be an investment club. And so, you know, you could KYC people that fund a node and just say, hey, this is a syndicate DAO now that is funding a specific node. And everyone who proposes a project that gets picked, uh, you know, the investment or the money that was locked in at the beginning just turns into an investment into the company. Uh, for that, you know, you obviously have to do KYC, uh, but uh, that's another option. And so, you know, the long-term vision is certainly like an extremely decentralized kind of like, you know, not leaderboard, but like, yeah, just tech stack that individual people can choose their battles on. <laughs> Amazing. You you like keep just touching on the next question. It's it's fantastic. So, you know, a bigger, a bigger criticism of DSI generally is this problem of effectively vetting for participation in a network, basically like ensuring individuals have enough relevant domain expertise, especially in science, to participate, um, but at scale, right, and in, in a decentralized manner. 
I think you'd have an interesting perspective coming from somewhere that, um, you know, often deals with bringing together communities of smart people who work in the sciences. Uh, is, is vetting people at scale a problem you thought about tackling in a certain way? I don't know. I mean, like vetting people, I'm not really sure what I think about that. I think that, I mean, on an individual level, you figure out really pretty quickly who makes valuable contributions and who doesn't. Um, I think that, you know, as long as you can really easily track who makes positive contributions, like the reason why I think, for example, reputation works well is because even in the pseudonymous systems, you, you can still have positive reputation. So, you know, let's say that, like, one problem, you know, of a pseudonymous system of, like, any kind could be that um, you can't really track people that, like, defraud. But I think as long as you can uh, build a positive reputation over time um, that is tied to your pseudonym, at least we can tra track positive contributions, right? Even if negative contributors could always defraud and uh, sign up under a new pseudonym. And I think the same really holds also for DSI. Like, I think as long as we can track really who makes continuously positive contributions to the space, um, I think we should be fine. And the whole thing that I think DSI really has to offer is, like, lowering the um, bounds of participation, right? So that, like, more people can make great contributions. If I found out one thing at Foresight is that um, people are incredibly versatile, like, people that are often on like a machines track, they have amazing things to say, uh, sometimes an our longevity track as well, where I'm just, like, totally... Um, uh, flabbergasted and so I wouldn't want to exclude people by doing extreme vetting up front I think as long as you can really track participation and then have good ways of removing kind of fraudsters from the network um, or from from a specific effort at least I think you know that is like a specific feature that DSI offers which is like making it more accessible up front so I think that you know I think it's more a feature than a bug that it has open participation honestly even though I also do want to say that whenever we outsource our bounties on Gitcoin, um, it's not that, you know, I think there's many fraudsters on it, but it's mostly that sometimes for, like, let's say we have a specific bounty for the newer tech tree of, like, how can we build more durable, um, you know, like, prerequisites or, like, hardware for brain computer interfaces. It's just not the case that on Gitcoin you get the best answers. Um, and that's mostly because not many scientists in neurotechnology are on Bitcoin yet. And so I think it's more of an onboarding problem of more people that are in science and tech with great domain expertise into the general design space um, rather than of like kind of, um, you know, like, yeah, putting boundaries in place and vetting the people that are in it. Totally. I, I think it'd be interesting now just to, touch on some of the real world applications of all this. So you're, you're a co-initiator of the Longevity Prize. Um, could you talk a little bit about how it came into being and what you think are maybe the key mechanisms to make progress in those areas? Yeah, um, I'm a very big fan of, um, you know, just, I think, like specifically, like, I think the people really at like um, Peter Dow and like many of the like, you know, really early kind of like, uh, early decide DAOs and like and the broader molecule team too for um kind of like living what they preach in terms of like really growing an ecosystem so um when like Vita DAO uh, had this had a grant out for a longevity prize in a previous Gitcoin round 
they got funding, uh, a ton of funding. Um, and then they, you know, were really in like, a, I think a hyper collaborative mindset and reached out to a few aligned organizations of which we were one of them to try to build a prize that would be a little bit different than like one large prize given to one big team at the end of a very long road, <laughs> but rather do a little bit more uh, something inclusive, which is, you know, build an ecosystem of different prizes that different people can contribute to um, and that different people can kind of like get behind um, and, uh, and, and kind of like also create individual areas within prizes that they would like to fund. And so we launched it earlier this year. And so the price is out right now. So if you are um, a potential funder in the longevity space and you don't really know what areas to fund, the longevity price is a good place to donate to just because we have a really wonderful committee of judges um, and, um, and a wonderful set of potentially proposed prizes already, of which a few are out there already. And so prizes are a good way, I think, when you're not entirely sure um, which area to fund to put your money to a price because that usually gets a ton of really great proposals going, especially if it's a price that looks more like a larger bounty ecosystem where we have um, where we divide it into a bunch of different um, prizes. And so yeah, really excited to like be part of this effort. Um, and we have a few really interesting prizes out in the making. The first prize that we is already out there. Uh, is the hypothesis price. So we give up to 20K for the best hypothesis that gets proposed to us through a one pager of the number one project that we should solve um, in longevity. And so that's one way for us to kind of like source potential areas to give larger um, prizes to. Um, and so, yeah, I think so far I've been really like really positively surprised by the contributions we've already gotten and by also frankly the participation on proposing new prizes. And so I think this more kind of decentralized approach to many smaller prizes that many people can win and create more of an ecosystem rather than like one large winner at the end of the day, I'm a big fan of, and it's working well so far. Amazing. So to, to start wrapping us up, um, I'd love to hear as, as someone who has like a top down view on so many amazing things in technology, what excites you the most firstly in, in DSI but also in the technologies foresight covers more generally today? Um, well, personally, I think I already spoke a bit about cryonics um, and I spoke a little bit about decentralized computing. Um, I think that this is really about an area that is like just weirdly undervalued still. Um, it's a really difficult space, I think, to make sense of the intersection of crypto and AI. I mean, we all know, I think it was Teal's statement um, AI is totalitarian and crypto is libertarian. <laughs> um, and so there's this maybe also inherent political divide between these areas of people interested in some of them. Um, or at least like, you know, there is there are at least some kind of like just really structural differences in the sense that crypto is very decentralized and AI often just happens to be through economies of scale and, and, and so forth to be a little bit more centralized. But I think that actually the intersection has so much to offer because we could really make you know compute like uh, incredibly like like a, a very democratized participatory approach to building the systems that we would like to have um and i think that's really exciting we wrote a book on this called gaming the future which is basically an approach of figuring out why is cooperation so important um, um how can we cooperate better across humans using crypto technologies 
and how can we cooperate better across humans and AI is using crypto technologies. <laughs> and so we kind of like made a few suggestions there of like specific areas that people can look into um, if they're interested in that intersection between, you know, humans, AIs, uh, and uh, and crypto. Um, and yeah, I think that's certainly one where I, I think that there just hasn't really, um, not much thinking has gone through that, even though, you know, I think if you just take AI seriously and if you t take the timeline seriously that many people in the field have, you know, we need to we need to figure out safe, secure ways of making AI go well um, and of having it be participatory. And I think that uh, crypto has a lot to say here. Um, and so I think it would be wonderful to get more people involved in that. I guess, you know, that's why we wrote the book. We're having a workshop on this at the early stages of October in San Francisco. Um, but, you know, the whole point of the book and the workshop is to figure out which projects are already existing at that intersection and uh, what, if anything, we can do to help them forward. Amazing. Alison, we're, I think, just about at time now. But before we say our goodbyes, before we end, um, what would you say to people who want to get more involved in some of the work going on at Foresight? Where can they go? Uh, depends really which person, which type of person you are. If you just want to follow along and like, you know, dip your toes, I would say, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at Alison Demon. My Twitter is basically Foresight Twitter. <laughs> um, or you can follow Foresight Inst on Twitter. Um, we also have uh, another project called existentialhope.com. So the kind of positive future visions that I um, kind of like allure to in the beginning, I note down all of my notes on positive futures, including all of the organizations to join, um, the, the kind of things I read and so forth on the page existentialhope.com. And then if you're interested in specific technology areas that I mentioned, we have these technology, technology groups that are focused on one domain and there's applications form for each of them on our website. Um, and finally, we have an upcoming um, member gathering, one in San Francisco uh, at Chateau du Fay in France. Um, and one in San Francisco at the Internet Archive and a private uh, villa in Berkeley. And so if you want to meet people in person <laughs> uh, that are working on these technologies, then that would be a great one. Applications um, for subsidized free tickets are already available, which are closing soon. Um, and so if you want to meet people in person, that could be an interesting one to go to as well. And so, yeah, there's different layers to, um, to join. If you are a potential donor and just want to kind of like support fellows, prizes, workshops, etc. in that space, then we do take donations. <laughs> um, and, and there's many ways in which we collaborate rather closely with our donors, including a personal longevity group um, that focuses a bit more on like the personal longevity goals of our donors, private like donation retreats and so forth. But uh, that's perhaps more like figured out by an email uh, to me, which uh, I think should be uh, easily accessible, but is at a at foresight.org as well. Amazing. Alison, thank you so much for the time. This was this was amazing to get to do with you. Thank you so much. I really am super supportive of this podcast. I think that you've had wonderful guests so far and I'm really excited for where you guys are going. Uh, and it's definitely going to be a big source of information for me as this wonderful space of DSI is growing. That's great to hear. We're happy to do it. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like any information about this podcast or about Molecule, or if you're interested in going deeper into today's topics, feel free to visit Molecule's site, Twitter, or Discord. You can find all the important links in the description and show notes below. 
Also, if you're a researcher seeking funding, if you want to start working in a biotech DAO or get involved in any way, please visit the website molecule.to for more information. Thanks again for tuning in and see you again soon. Thank you.